Okay, um, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and take that out. We're going to continue in our journey through the book of Romans. And as we've been uh, kind of plowing our way through the book of Romans, kind of cruising through, we arrive here in chapter, well, the middle of chapter 15. And at what many would say is the beginning of what Paul would be uh, what you would call Paul's conclusion to the book of Romans. Conclusion to the book of Romans. And I do air quotes there because you know that whenever a preacher says that it's time for the conclusion, that he's just starting to think about considering concluding. He's not actually concluding. So this is the case here with, with Romans. There's, there's still a good bit more, chapter and a half, but... But as we see here, we find ourselves at this position in this, this letter that was written as a letter, right? It was written in one continuous letter form to a people, to a church at the Church of Rome. We're the ones that kind of put the, the verses and the chapters in. Paul didn't put those in when he originally wrote them. But we see, we've, we've sort of seen his progression as he has unfolded this letter to the church at Rome. He's, he, he has a typical style that he ten, tends to write in as he writes these letters and a pattern that he, that he writes in. So he's, he starts out with all this sort of super deep and glorious theology of, of who God is and all of these things that God has done. And he's, he's unpacking the, the nature of who we are apart from God, that we are sinners and we, we desperately need this, this grace, this, this gospel that God offers us. And the only way that we can... We can cling on to God is through this faith that he gives to us. Uh, just as he, Abraham was, was counted as righteousness by his faith, the same is true of us as we consider how to be united back with God. Right? So he's, he's unpacking all these grand and glorious truths about the nature of Jews and Gentiles and the gospel and all these things that are just enormous truths, enormous declarations of truths. And in chapter 8, we see these these grand statements of these indicatives of, of God declaring these truths that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's an incredible thing to say. There's no condemnation that we can never be separated now in Christ from the love of God. There's nothing that can take us away from his love. That's an incredibly immense thing to say. These are, these are huge truths that he's unpacking in this book. And then we get towards the end of this book, and he starts to, to, sh to shift his thinking, right? He, he shifts away from these grand statements of theology and, and truth and declarations about God and the gospel, and he, and he starts to bring it down into our lives, right? He starts to say, okay, now, now we, have to, we have to take these truths, and we have to figure out what these truths mean for us. How do we live in light of these truths? What does that mean for us? And as we read our Bibles it's really important for us to pay attention to these patterns. There are certain patterns that we see in the Bible about how God reveals truth, about how he reveals the gospel, the way that he wants us to think, the order of our thinking, so to speak. We don't, we don't come to God's word first. Well, we may come to God's word this way, but we shouldn't come to God's word first and say, okay, God, just tell me what to do. Tell me, tell me what to do. Tell me how to be a good person. Tell me how to live. Tell me how I can be successful. Tell me how to have a good marriage. Tell me how to be a good parent. Tell me how to make lots of money. Tell me how, oh, like, we, don't, we don't primarily come to God's word 
with those things first and foremost in our mind. If we do, we're going to kind of miss the point. We're going to miss the deeper things that are happening that God is trying to communicate to us in His Word. But I think oftentimes that's how we come to God's Word. We, we, we sit down, we plop open the Bible, and we say, okay, okay God, i got to get myself figured out. So I'm hoping that you can show me something in here about how to turn my life around. That's not the worst thing, to come to God for that. But we have to understand the way in which God reveals himself, the way in which he reveals the truth, the way, the, the way in which he teaches us the gospel and the things about himself. There's a pattern to it. There's a way that, that shapes our minds. We don't start with, okay, God, tell me what to do. The way that God reveals himself is he starts with himself. He starts by revealing himself. He said, this is what I'm like. Right? We, we open up our Bibles, and right away, the first sentence we see, that God says, here's, here's what I'm like. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? He's saying, okay, I want you to see something about me right away. I am the creator. I, I've made all of this. I've established everything that you see. I breathed it out, and I spoke it into existence. He, he starts with, with talking about who he is, right? When he talks to his people, the Israelites, right before he gives them all the things that they're to do, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He, he's, he wants them to know, like, first and foremost, you have to look at me. You have to look at who I am. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you how to live. I'm going to give you things to do. I'm going to give you a life. I'm going to give you life abundant. He's prepared good works for us to do, but first, we can't just skip right to those things and expect to be healthy. He, he, he's unfolded things in a certain way, in a progression of thought, and he, and he wants us to begin to think this way. It's the, it's the progression of the gospel, right? It starts not with us. It starts with God. It starts with who he is. It starts with him revealing his character to us. When we read chapters like Ephesians 2, and Paul says, hey, this is what you're like apart from God. And it says, but God, being rich in mercy, you see how it establishes his character? It says, but God, being rich in mercy, with the great love that he has loved us with, he has made us alive with Christ. Before it even talks about what God does, it talks about who he is and what he's like. It talks about his character, the nature of God. Because all of the things that God does flow out of who he is. It flows out of his nature, his character, his essence, his unchangeable nature, his reliable nature. The things that he does flow out of who he is. This is, this is what we're supposed to see. We're supposed to notice this in God's word. This is part of what Paul is trying to teach us. This is what God's revealing to us, that the things that God does flow out of who he is. The things that he knows to be true about himself. And so when we, when we read books like Romans, and we, and we see this pattern unfolding through the whole book of Romans, where, where, where God is, his character is being established, and then his work is established. And then from that work, right, God's character, and then his work, he establishes in us a new identity. Right? He, he, he changes us because of the work that he does to us because of the nature of who he is. Are you tracking? God is, so he does. And because he does, it makes us into something else. He takes us from death into life. He takes us from, from slaves 
and aliens, people who are against him, his enemies, and he makes us his children and his friends. Right? He, he, his work changes the nature of who we are. He gives us a new identity. He gives us new nature. He gives us new minds and new thoughts. He gives us new positions as he seats us with Christ in the heavens. Not because of what we've done. Not because of who we are. Not because he looked down and says, I really have to have these guys on my team. No, it's all flowing out of the, the nature and the character of who he is. He, he's gracious and he's loving and he's kind. And these things are overflowing into the creation that he has created. And those things are landing on us through his sovereign power and his plan and his grace and his, his mercy and his kindness to his people. Those things flow out to us from who he is. This is incredibly important for us. This is huge for us to, to begin to shape our thinking and the way that we think about who we are. Because we can't just show up and say, okay, God, tell me what to do. God's going to slow you down, and he's going to say, first, you need to see who I am. And we go, what? That doesn't make sense. Unless we're in his word and we're seeing this pattern playing out where God is saying, no, because of who I am, this is what I'm doing. And because of what I'm doing, I'm making you into something else. So what's the logical next conclusion? Because you are something else, then you do something else. The things that you do come out of the things that God says are true about you. The new identity that he gives you because of who he is and what he has done, he establishes this new identity, and we now live in light of this new identity. The things that he has called us to flow out of those things. So when we see at the beginning of chapter 15, sentences like, Welcome one another as you have been welcomed by God. It makes more sense to us. Because, oh, okay, we have been welcomed by God. Well, why have we been welcomed by God? Because God is kind and he's generous and he's gracious. And he, and he welcomes us in Christ because Christ came and he lived and he died and he, he paid the penalty for our sin and he made it possible now for us to be welcomed back to God because of who he is and what he's done. And now he says that you are my children and you've been adopted into my family and you are citizens of my kingdom and you're members of my household. So now you can be welcomed into my table. And we go, oh, that makes more sense. <laughs> it's not just be nice to people because God was nice to you. Sure, that's the short way of saying it. But if we don't understand the bigger picture, if we don't understand the biblical pattern of thinking, we're not going to understand the scope of what he's saying when he says, welcome one another as you have been welcomed. Christ has welcomed you, so welcome one another. You are the welcomed, so now you can be welcoming. Do you see how it flows? We can be welcoming to one another because God is the greatest welcomer. I don't even know if that's a word. I just made it up. So this is an incredibly important question for us to ask ourselves as we're reading God's word, as we're studying his word. We, we, we have to pay attention to this pattern. We don't start with what do we do. We start with, OK, God, what are you showing me about yourself? What are you showing me about your nature? What are you showing me here about what you have done because of who you are to me? And because of those things, what are you now saying to be true about me? What are, the, what are the things, God, that you are declaring to be truth about me, in spite of me, in spite of who I am, in spite of my past, in spite of my present? What are, God, what are you saying to be true about me? Because Not because I'm special, not because I'm good, 
but because I'm in Christ. This is, this is the, the defining line that, that Paul shows us very explicitly here in Romans, right? The defining line of God's favor for, towards you is not how good you've been. It's not what your past has been. It's not how much money you give. It's one two-word phrase. Are you in Christ or not? That's it. Are you in Christ or are you not in Christ? If you're in Christ, then you have everything that Christ has. You have it. Right now, today, in this room, you have it. You have God's favor. When, when, when Jesus was baptized, he comes up out of the water. At least we think he was maybe he was fully dunked. I don't know. Probably. The voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is before Jesus even did any of his ministry. God says, I am pleased in my son. And so when, when Paul says later that I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me, what do you think God now says of you? He says, this is my son and my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because you're in Christ. You're hidden with Christ in God. We just read it in Colossians 3. So this is an important question for us to ask. As we read this chapter, as we read our Bibles, as we engage with God, how has God acted toward me in Christ? What has he done? Because what he has done toward you flows out of who he is. And what he has done toward you makes you into something new. And it shapes how we live. So we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. If we remember back to chapter 12, right, the beginning of chapter 12, we see this, this shift. This is where Paul begins to shift this thinking now from, from who God is and what he has done over into now, okay, what does this mean for us? Who does God say that we are and what should we do? He talks about this idea of living as living, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices, right? Presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. And he says that we do this in view of something. There's something that we look to that gives us this perspective that we should give ourselves now back to God. And that perspective is not we, we present ourselves as living sacrifices in view of God's wrath or in view of God's condemnation, right? No, because those things have already been taken away from us in Christ. It says we do these things in view of God's mercy because he has been merciful to us. He has been gracious to us. He has acted toward us in a way that we didn't deserve. So now we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to him. So we welcome one another as we've been welcomed. Ephesians 4, 32 says that we forgive one another as we have been forgiven, right? 1 John 4, right? We love because we have been first loved. You see the flow? You see the pattern? The, the pattern is well established. We have to notice it. Our lives are shaped by his. And this is how Paul lived his life, by the power of the Spirit, and this is how he's encouraging us to live here. And as we come to our, our passage today, we see some things here by looking at 
God's truth through Paul and his life and his interaction with this church that, that can help us to give shape to our lives as we seek to live in response to this gospel, this pattern, right? This gospel-shaped life that is shaped not just by, God, how can we live to be good, but it's shaped by, God, who are you? And what are you like? And what have you done? And who do you say that we are? Okay, now, now we live. Now we go. So what are the things? What are these calls? Let's talk about three calls today. Three calls for gospel-shaped people, right? Gospel-shaped Christians, right? To, be, to find a good church, to find his people, to find other children and be with them and live life with them. And we view life as mission and worship, and we remember that God produces the fruit. So, we remember that Paul's a missionary. You remember that? Paul's a missionary. It's oftentimes, I, I seem to forget that as I'm reading his letters. Like, Paul is a missionary who goes on many missionary journeys. He's, he's sort of a, a, a tip of the spear kind of missionary guy. He's, he's going into, as he says here, the non-Jewish world, the Gentile world, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Most of us in here are Gentiles, as far as I know. Maybe some Jews, I don't know. But. And he would go on these missionary journeys, and he would go into these cities, and he would preach the gospel in these cities that had never heard the gospel. And he would preach the gospel, and people would hear the gospel, and they would believe, and they would come to Christ. And then he would stay in those cities, and he would help those people establish churches. <laughs> he would say, okay, the first thing that we need to do now that you have come to Christ is we have to establish a church. We have to establish a way for you to live intentionally with one another in the ways that God has called you to live because he has changed who you are, and he has brought you to himself. And he has brought you into his family, and he wants you to live with his family. This is the pattern. And this is Paul's strategy. He goes into these cities, and he does this strategy, right? He shows up, starts preaching, people get saved. Okay, let's start up a, let's start up a gathering of people. Let's, let's learn how to live together as God's people. And it's pretty easy to see, right? You don't have to work hard to understand Paul's strategy. It's all throughout Acts. It's all throughout his letters. We see it. And oftentimes, he would write letters back to these churches that he went to and preached and established, and he would write letters back because he would need to yell at them for stuff. They would be going crazy, and they would be forgetting everything he said. And he's like, you guys, like the Corinthians, he's like writing them like 12 letters. We have like two of them, which is actually like the fourth and the sixth letter or something. I can't remember. But he's writing all these letters back to these churches like, you guys, seriously, come on. Do you forget the things that I talk, we talked about? How do you f so quickly forget the things, the, the Galatians, right? How do you guys so quickly deserting this gospel? If anyone comes to you, an angel or anybody comes to you, if Peter shows up and he's preaching a wrong gospel, right? He's correcting them. But, but here in the, the church in Rome, he actually, did, he wasn't the one who first established the church in Rome. But somebody else did. So he's writing back to them and, he, and he's giving them all of this deep, knowledge and this deep theology and he's writing to them to teach them because he has he's been given authority to do so because he's an apostle but he wasn't the one who actually started it but what he what we see here is that he's he's writing to them with appreciation he said he's he's saying he's satisfied to see them you might not think that from the first 
14 chapters, he, he sounds like he's coming in pretty strong towards them. He's writing pretty boldly and, and harshly in some ways toward them. But he gets to chapter 15, he's like, you know what, actually, I, I don't know why I got so worked up. Like, you guys are doing pretty good. That's what he's saying here. But we see here this instruction, and we see this shape that he's, that he's, that he's speaking to them, and we recognize this call for us as gospel-shaped people to find God's people, to find good, healthy churches to be a part of. Look what he says in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. He's, he's celebrating the fact that they actually don't really need him to come there. They're, they're actually quite healthy in spite of the fact that, that Paul hasn't been there yet in the, in the capacity to help them set things up. He's, these things that he's listing, goodness, knowledge, and the ability to instruct one another. There's some churches where he writes to them and says, you guys are like children. You, you, you can't get off of the milk, right? We, you need to move on to the meat. But he's not saying that about the church of Rome. He's like, you guys... You guys are able to handle the meat. And he's like, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy to hear that you guys are mature enough for me to be able to write these enormous categories of theology to you in this letter and that you would actually understand it. But these are all, if you think about it, goodness, knowledge, and ability to instruct one another. These are all signs of a healthy, functioning church. Right? Goodness. Right? This isn't talking about simply just moralism. Just be good people. This is talking about this, this goodness that grows out of the, the planted gospel, right? The, the gospel has been planted in the hearts of these people by the Spirit, and it's been, it's been watered by the Word, and, and out of it is growing this good fruit, this goodness that he's, he's noticing about the church in Rome. This is the sign of a good, healthy church. People who have knowledge, not just like book smarts. This is the knowledge that he's talking about in Ephesians 4, right? That we, that we um, he says it right here, I wrote it down, thankfully. In verse 12, right, the apostles, po uh, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith. This is what he's talking about at the beginning of chapter 15. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. This is the knowledge that he's talking about in Romans, right? That was Ephesians 4, and over here he's talking about the same thing in Romans. He's noticing their knowledge, right? This is the knowledge of the Son of God. It's not just facts about the Bible. It's not just the, the laws of the Torah. This is knowledge of the Son of God in His ways. How to live in light of the things that God has said to be true about Himself. And He's commending them for this. He's saying, I'm, I'm happy to see that, that good fruit is being produced in your midst and that you guys are knowledgeable about how to actually live in light of who you are. And then he talks about this idea of being able to instruct one another. We see this also in Ephesians 4, right? Where he says we, we need to be able to speak the truth to one another in love. This is the same concept. So he's, he's commending the church in Rome for the things that he is encouraging in the church of Ephesus, right? It's the same things. We want to see this good fruit being produced so that you can grow up into this knowledge of the Son of God and His ways and you do that by the instruction of one another, the speaking the truth to one another in love. These are signs and symptoms of a healthy, functioning body of believers. 
Are these things happening in our midst? Are we seeing goodness growing out of the Spirit's work in our hearts? Are we seeing maturity happening in the minds and the hearts of our people? Are we able to speak the truth to one another in love so that we can grow up in every way into Christ? These are the things that that people shaped by the gospel go after. These are the things that that people who are who are brought into God's family and are growing. These are the things that we crave, whether we realize it or not. These are the things that we're actually craving. We need these things. We need this good fruit. We need this knowledge of Christ. And we need brothers and sisters around us to instruct us in the truth, to to exhort us, as Hebrews says, every day. Paul knows that a healthy church is vital for every believer. And he's happy that it's happening in Rome. And it's giving him peace of mind. He's like, I, I, I don't feel like I have to rush to get to you because the Spirit is at work in you. And we're seeing these good signs of health. And so for us as believers, wherever God has us, wherever God sends us, wherever God places us, these should be our priorities to find God's people who are, dis- who are displaying these symptoms, these signs of health, of, of, of good fruit, of knowledge of, the Christ, of Christ and, and the ability to, to instruct one another. They're not small things. So this is the first call. To find good, healthy churches, people of God, wherever you are. Not solo, rogue Christianity. We don't see that in God's word. Not, not solo, rogue Christians who are who are fed by just celebrity pastors. I've been guilty of this. I've been guilty of, of, of thinking that that's enough, right? Well, I listen to so-and-so, or I, I'm catching so-and-so's podcast, or there's been seasons in my life where I've felt, you know, like, I feel like I'm getting enough. And I, God's had to correct me. He's had to correct my heart in these ways of like, now, those things are good supplements, Whoever, whoever you're podcasting or listening to, those can be great supplements, but it's not a replacement for the people of God around you that God has placed in your life to speak the truth to you in love, to, to interrupt your, your own private conversation, as Paul Tripp says, right? That, that can speak into our minds to say things to ourselves that we, don't, that we can't or won't say on our own. These things are vital. We know that no church is perfect, there's no perfect church. And if there is a perfect church, as soon as I show up, it's not perfect anymore. <laughs> right? So this is, the, this is the first call that we see. This, this, this call for us as gospel-shaped people to find God's people, to commit to them. Second, we see that all of our lives and all of our mission is worship back to God. All of our life, all of our mission, everything that God has given us and called us to, we live as worship to Him and we give back to Him as worship. Look at verses 15 and 16, Romans chapter 15. He says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. This is Him sort of recognizing, like, yeah, I sort of got a little bit loud back there. Sorry about that. He says, Because of the grace given me by God. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles 
in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And Paul, here, he's talking about his mission, his ministry that God has given to him, to be a minister to the Gentiles. And this was his call that was special to him. And it was given to him, he says, by, by God. It was given to him by Christ directly. We see this. God tells him to do this. Jesus literally tells him to do this. But we notice the, the, this priestly language that he's using here. He's using this, this priestly way of talking. And he's, he's using it to describe the work that he has done. Now, Paul wasn't a priest. He wasn't functioning in the office of a priest as in the Old Testament priests. But he's using this language as an image for us to see. And this is, this is more of an outflow from this Romans 12 idea of, of living sacrifices, right? He's saying that the way that he approaches his work and his ministry is through the lens of a sacrifice. Just like he talked about earlier. And the sacrifice that he is offering is this work. He's presenting it back to God. And his work is his ministry to the Gentiles. He's saying, my work is my sacrifice. And my work is to the Gentiles, to preach the gospel to them, to teach them. This is not talking about the Gentiles all of a sudden going and making sacrifices like the Old Covenant. It's not what this is talking about. This is Paul saying that the Gentile believers are his offering back to God. This is his work. This is his way of living, of being a living sacrifice, of sacrificing himself as a, on the altar back to God, as he references in Romans 12, 1, right? This is his way of being a living sacrifice, of going to the Gentiles, of risking his life, of getting beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, all of these things. These are, this is him saying, I have given myself as a, as a sacrifice for the Gentiles, and I'm offering this sacrifice of the Gentiles back to you, God. This is my work. And this is how we are to live to Christ. Jesus came, and he gave his life, and his ministry, and himself, as the once and for all sacrifice. That's what Jesus did. He came to be the once and for all sacrifice. Paul knows that this isn't, this isn't the same category as what Jesus has done. This is not what he's saying. So we look to Christ and his sacrifice, and now in light of that, we give our lives back to him, our mission back to him. Not so we can be reconciled back to him, not so that we can be accepted by him. We already are. We already are accepted. We already are reconciled back to God. And this is how Paul sees his life. This is how we should see our lives. God called Paul to a specific ministry. To a specific place, in a specific time, specific people, in a specific way. And we have to recognize that about ourselves. We have been called into a specific time, in a specific place, and gifted by God in a specific way, all of us. And ours is not the same as Paul's. 
We are not to get on a ship and sail around the Mediterranean Sea on a Caribbean cruise. Like, I'm just following Paul's trail here. This is my ministry. Maybe. I guess maybe it's possible. But chances are that your ministry is different than Paul's. I'm quite certain that it is. Why? Because you're here. (laughs) Because you're here. You live here, and you work here, and you go to school here, and you have neighbors here, and you have family here. God has placed you here. That's how you know this is where your ministry is. And God may take you somewhere else, and that's where your ministry will be. But right now, God has placed you here. And he's, he's called you, and he's equipped you, and he's gifted you, and he's placed you where you are on purpose. For his purposes. He was called and he was gifted to minister in the context that God sent him to. And God has called and gifted you and me to minister in the context that he has placed us in. And Paul says that this happens because of the grace that was given to him by God. It's not something that we just conjure up on our own. It happens to us. It comes to us by God's grace, through God's grace. Grace takes us out of the picture. It takes us out of the equation. Paul did not expect to be doing what he was doing. He didn't train for it necessarily with that inside. He wasn't a young kid and he wasn't like, you know what I'd like to be when I grow up? I would like to sail around to the Mediterranean Sea, leaving Antioch, like to go to like Turkey. He wouldn't have called it that and like Greece, and like all the way to like Albania, which is what this weird word in here is, like Illyricum, Albania, Yugoslavia. He wouldn't use any of these terms, but but you see, like he he didn't plan for this. He had had a plan and a path for his life, and he's like, okay, this is what I'm, I'm going after, and he was serious about it. And God stopped him and said, nope. I see what you have planned for your life, but what you have planned for your life is not what I have planned for your life. And guess what Paul did? He was like, okay, I'll do it. If you just let me see again, I'll do it. Right? God, God changed his trajectory. So, so what you think might be your tra- trajectory now, it may not be the, God's trajectory for you in the future. Don't think that because you're at a certain spot in life or you're at a certain position or you you have a certain uh, arrangement or whatever you're at that God can't use you now and he can't use you in the future. God will use you now and he will use you in the future. The point is that God is the one who determines. God sovereignly places us where he has us on purpose so that we can serve him wherever we are and we can be sort of quote unquote missionaries wherever we are. So the gospel shapes us. The gospel shapes us to commit to his people, to find his people and commit to them, to offer ourselves and our lives and our work back to him as a living sacrifice wherever he has us. And the last point is this, that while we are 
God's people on God's mission, we trust that God is the one that produces the fruit. God is the one that produces the fruit. Look at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. That seems like an odd thing to say, doesn't it? Like, wait a second, Paul, you just spent all this time talking about boasting and not boasting. But, but notice how he says it, right? I have reason to be proud of my work for God, but he grounds it where? In Christ Jesus. That's where he grounds his, his boast. So he's not boasting about himself. He's boasting in Christ, in Christ's work in and through him. He's saying, I am in Christ, and so I can be proud of the work that God is doing through me in Christ as I go and obey him and do what he wants for God, right? It seems like this, this boast in himself, but it's actually not. He's grounding it in his union with Christ. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. Paul was able to be a part of some incredible things. No doubt he saw astonishing things, things that we would probably not believe unless we saw them. No doubt he witnessed hundreds, maybe thousands of people who had never heard of Christ, had never heard of the gospel, and he shows up, and he begins to preach them and tell them of the good news. And they drop everything and they pursue Christ. God shows up and he changes their lives. And Paul gets this front row seat. He has seen amazing, incredible things. He says, I've seen signs. I've seen wonders, miracles happening all around as I'm going forth. And we're being faithful and being obedient to what God has called us to do. We're seeing God do these signs and these wonders. that We can't explain them. He's working miracles around us. But notice how he grounds it, right? In Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what? Except what Christ has accomplished. He's acknowledging who has accomplished the work. He's not saying, look at all the things I've done. Look at all these churches I've planted. Look how great of an evangelist I am. Look how great of an apostle I am. You should come to my conference. You should buy my book. No. He's saying, look what Christ has accomplished through me. He's like, I'm the tool. I'm the microphone. God God is accomplishing his work through me. This is 2 Corinthians 5, right? God making his appeal through us. This is Paul showing that on display. God has made his appeal through me to the Gentiles. And now I am proud of what God has done through me as I am in Christ. Paul understands. He worked hard. He says, there's no one that works harder than me. That's what he says. No one's going to outwork me for the gospel. But But he knows that it's not himself that is producing this fruit. 
He knows that he's unable to accomplish in his own flesh the good things that he's seeing all around him. He's unable to change a single soul. He's unable to save anyone. He's unable to establish any healthy churches anywhere in and of his own strength. And I know we say that all the time, don't we? We say these things all the time. Yet somehow we, it's like it runs through our fingers, right? Like this idea of like, yeah, I know, like we sing about it. Yet not I, but Christ through me. We sing about it, we talk about it, but somehow it just creeps in, doesn't it? This pride, this, this, this arrogance, or this despair if things aren't going our way. This, we just hang our heads in shame like, oh, I could never be. And we forget, we forget that at the end of the day, it's God who produces the fruit. Paul knows that these powerful signs, these wonders, that they're produced by the Spirit of God. And Paul knows what he is called to do, but if we notice here, he also knows what he's not called to do. He's very clear. He's like, I know what I'm called to do, and I know what I'm, I know what I'm not called to do. He doesn't feel like he has to do everything. Why? Because he, he knows that it's God producing the fruit. He knows that God is the one building his church. He knows that it's not Paul building the church. He's like, I, I can trust that if the gospel has already been here, that I don't need to go there. Why? Because if they're not getting saved because of me. They're getting saved because of the gospel. And if the gospel's there, that's great. You see the, you see the, the humility woven into this? You see the trust that he has for God? Of like, God, I know you're the one that's building your church. So I don't need to go over there. He's like, I, I want to go to Spain. Why? Because the gospel hasn't been there yet. I know that that's my assignment, and I can trust that if I go there, God's going to do what he wants to do there. It's amazing. You would think that Paul, he's like, I'm a bigwig. Where do I need to go? I need to go to Rome, right? That's like the, the New York City. That's like the, the L.A. That's like whatever, right? The Tokyo of the day. That's, the, that's where all the action's happening. So I need to be in Rome. He's like, no, no, I don't need to go to Rome. Why? Because you guys already have the gospel. The spirit is already moving. You, you already have a healthy church functioning there. I need to go where God has me going. You see his trust, right? He's trusting that God is the one producing the fruit. And this is great comfort for us, right? This is great comfort for us. We can trust that we have a good shepherd. We can trust that for ourselves, and we can trust that for our brothers and our sisters. We can trust that as we go and we preach and proclaim the gospel to our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members. We can trust that, it's, that God's not counting on you <laughs> to produce the fruit. He's wanting to use you to produce the fruit. His fruit that he produces of his power. So when we feel anxiety, we feel this anxiety, don't we? Because we don't really believe that God produces the fruit. When we get down to it, we really do think that it hinges on us. I know I do, often. <laughs> this is what holds me back often, where I go, ah, it's kind of scary. Ah, I don't think I have what it takes. I don't have, the, I don't have the skills. I don't have the ability. I don't have the polish, right? Or whatever it is, like, I don't have it. What am I doing? I'm not, I'm believing that it's me. I'm believing that I produce fruit. That's unbelief. That's sin. <laughs> that's, that's lack of trust in who God is. 
So wherever God has placed you, whatever God has placed me, let's be faithful to that. And let's trust that he actually does produce fruit, that he does actually want to make his appeal to the people around you through you. And let's set out together to be people that are shaped by the gospel. Let's welcome one another as we've been welcomed. Let's forgive one another as we have been forgiven. Let's commit to one another to pursue this this good fruit and this knowledge of, of the Son of God. And let's instruct one another. Let's speak the truth to one another in love. Let's exhort one another every day. And let's live our lives as living sacrifices to Him. To the one who sacrificed Himself for us so that we could be whole. And let's be on mission to the places where He has called us. And how do I know where He's called me? Look around you. That's where He's called you right now. Tomorrow, if you're wondering, God, where have you called me? Okay, where do you work? Where do you go to school? Where do you live? What, te- what sports teams are your kids on? Right? What, who are the people around you? That's who he's called you to. That's who he's called me to. And let's trust him with the outcome. Let's, relieve, let's release ourselves from the weight of trying to be God. Because we're not very good at it. And let's trust that he really is in control. He is. He's alive, and he's well, and he's sitting on his throne, and he's never taken a moment off. He's never taken a vacation. He's not concerned about what's happening around us. He's not uh, wringing his hands as he scrolls through his Twitter feed like, oh boy, this stuff in Russia is really getting out of hand. What do I? No, he's not worrying. He's, he's calm. He's confident. He has a smile on his face towards his people. He has a plan. He has a future. He has given you a hope, a living hope that is sitting right at his right hand, which is his son who is advocating for you and who is interceding for you right now. So let's trust him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this, this word. Help us as we try to believe you and trust you because we can't do it on our own but you are good and you are faithful and you help us. And so God, we we ask for that now. And God, um, as we take communion together, we ask that you would, um, as we talked about at the beginning of the service, that you would lift our eyes to you, that you would help us to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, his body broken, his blood shed for us so that we could be united back to you. That is not our work, it is not our behavior, it's not our pedigree. It is you and you alone through your goodness and your grace that reconciles us to Christ. So help us to believe it. Give us a moment now, God, to examine our hearts before we take communion together. To examine areas of our hearts that we have not yet yielded to you. Areas of our hearts that we are holding back. Relationships that have been damaged, that we need to pursue reconciliation in. Thoughts that we've not handed over, desires that we are holding on to, that we're holding over and above what you have for us, God. Whatever it is, 
show us and show us your grace that is more sufficient than those things. That overcomes those things. That draws us back to you by your mercy in and through Christ and help us come now and participate in your body, in your blood together as your people. We love you, God, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.